You'll turn with me to John chapter 4, finish up this chapter today, and we'll start chapter 5. <clears throat> Jesus has been making his way north to Galilee and meeting people all along the way, and so we're going to see uh, a couple of other contacts that he makes here in this story. We'll see one in Galilee and then one that when he's back in Jerusalem. So let's, um, before we go to the text, let's go to him and ask for help with it this morning. Lord Jesus, as we come to you this morning, as we come to your word and this story about you, we pray that you would help us to to not see it as a way to fan our desire to be or to earn our way to you somehow. To earn our way by our own good works, by our own faith that we've somehow derived and drummed up on our own. But Father, help us to trust in you alone for our salvation. And help us to trust in you when we come to this, your, your word. So strengthen us, guide us in the truth, convict us of our sin. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we come to this story, we're going to be looking at um, a couple of individuals. Both of them exercise some measure of faith. And as I read about them and studied them this week, it reminded me of the uh, Charlie Brown Halloween special. Uh, I know I had to draw some weird distinctions sometimes. Uh, but you've all seen the Charlie Brown Halloween special. And there's this character, Linus. And Linus is one of my favorite characters. I like him a lot. He's kind of the philosopher of the bunch. And so he believes in this character called the Great Pumpkin. And he believes that the Great pumpkin's going to come visit him under the condition that his pumpkin patch is the most sincere pumpkin patch in the land. So I don't know how a pumpkin patch becomes sincere, but apparently he's picked one out that is especially sincere. He does all that he can do to prep for the coming of the great pumpkin. The pumpkin. He, like again, he selects this particularly sincere pumpkin patch he writes a letter to the great pumpkin demonstrating his support and his, his credence to him. He brings his uh, quasi-girlfriend Sally along to witness and to uh, see the coming of the great pumpkin. But then you remember he gets made fun of by the rest of the friends that went out and trick-or-treated. And he, uh, he messes up, or seemingly messes up, when he says, uh, if he comes. And he says, oh no, I'm doomed. You know, that single lack of sincerity would be all it would take for him not to come. Well, of course, the, the great pumpkin doesn't come, and we don't know if it's because of his lack of sincerity or not. Uh, but as he's being consoled by Charlie Brown, which is kind of strange that Charlie Brown is being doing the consoling here, he says, well, don't take it too hard, Linus. I've done lots of stupid things in my life, too. Insulted, Linus explains that next year, He's going to choose a place that is real sincere. He's going to do it even better than the year before. Well, what's the problem? He believed that because of his own lack of sincerity or because of his own lack of faith that he was passed over 
by the Great Pumpkin, and the Great Pumpkin visited more sincere places. It sounds kind of silly, you know, when we think of it wrapped up in this, this fun story of Charlie Brown, but it's actually one of the most deadly doctrines making its rounds in our churches today. Christians all over the world believe that in order to be healed, or in order to get a check in the mail, or in order to get a new car, or whatever, that they simply need to have enough faith to do that, and with enough faith they can get these things. They're being told this by these so-called word of faith preachers, who claim that if one only has enough faith, they can never be sick. They can speak money into their lives and perhaps even ward off death for a time, giving themselves the power of the Word of God, even power over the Word of God, essentially harnessing it like some sort of magic spell, treating God like he's some sort of genie in a bottle. Why do I call it deadly? Well, because children and adults have actually died from refusing treatment because they believed that it was their faith alone that was going to heal them. Now God, he can definitely heal as he pleases, and he does, but, and, but God's also provided this world with skilled health professionals that, use, that he uses that means. So again, this type of teaching is wrong, and it can be very dangerous. So our text today is going to show two extremes of faith, but one Savior and the result being the same. So we'll consider our own tendencies towards this false doctrine, because we have them, and we'll look at a Savior who delivers us, even when we are faithless. We're going to look at two points, the faith of a father and his continued belief, and then the faithless cripple and his faithful Savior. So with that, let's look at the text, John chapter 4, starting at verse 43, and then we'll go to chapter 5, verse 9. Let's stand together as we read God's Word today. John chapter 4, starting at verse 43. After the two days he departed for Galilee... For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When the man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour that he began to get better, and he said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that this was the hour that Jesus had, had said to him, Your son will live, and he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, 
and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, and these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he was, had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So here in this text, Jesus continues on to Galilee, and in Galilee he does these signs and wonders, and the people see them, and then he meets this official, and the official here was actually probably one of the nobles who worked for Herod Antipas in Galilee. The word there in the Greek is where we get our word basilica from for official which literally means like a chamber of the king. So this is one of the people that worked for Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas is not the same Herod that tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. This was Herod the Great, but this is Herod Antipas's father. He's one, again, that wanted to kill baby Jesus, and he did this by looking for all the Hebrew babies to kill them. And Herod Antipas would go on to kill John the Baptist, and even turn his back, or turn Jesus back over to the Romans to be killed. So he wasn't the best type of person. So this wasn't a Jesus-friendly puppet monarchy kind of thing going on here. Yet, this official still seeks out Jesus. Because his son is sick, and he's now, by now, probably heard that Jesus has this ability to do the extraordinary. But Jesus, and Jesus was in the same place, you'll remember that he did his first miracle, Cana Galilee. So I'm sure word got around quickly that he was coming back, and I'm sure he was probably getting lots of wedding invitations as he came back. <clears throat> Jesus' response to this man's request is different than we might expect. So let's look here just at the faith of a father and his continued belief. Jesus said to him, his father comes up to Jesus and says, Come down and heal my son. He's at the point of death. And Jesus says to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Why would Jesus say this? Well, we see him say things a lot, say things similar to this a lot of times through the Gospels. You only believe because you see the signs and wonders. You only believe because you were fed the fish and the loaves. You only believe because you saw me do something great, and now you want to see it again. He walked around performing these signs and these miracles all the time. People followed him around in order to see signs and miracles. I mean, we can totally relate with this. If, if someone, I mean, if we heard today that someone made, you know, gallons of wine at a wedding, or someone fed 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch, or someone made the dead to rise, and they're still walking around town doing this stuff, we would go see. 
we absolutely would go see. And so you get why people are walking around with them. And you kind of understand, too, because some of these people are probably walking around hoping, what, that it'll benefit them, that maybe Jesus will look on them, maybe they'll get some kind of benefit. And so you get Jesus' response here, because many would only follow him to get these kind of miracles, to see him. But this man was persistent, and his persistence shows a kind of faith. He says, sir, come down before my child dies. And thankfully, I've never been put in a position of having this feeling of my child being at death's door. But I've had a sick kid before in the hospital. We've, we've had one with pneumonia. and She was in the hospital for three days. And so I know that desperate kind of feeling. And I would have done just about anything to be able to go home and her to be 100% well. You want everything to be back to normal. This guy, this, this father, he's an official of the king. He's official of a bad king. But he's still a man who has a kid. He's still a dad. He wants this, his child to be better. That's normal. And so he just pushes past Jesus' question concerning his lack of faith and demonstrating that he really believes that Jesus can do it. And Jesus will do it, regardless of what his motives might be, what this man's motives might be. This, he just wants his son to be well. And so what does Jesus say to him? Go, your son will live. As if he was somehow swayed by this man's persistence. And what do we read next? This is what I love. And we read this earlier about him believing too. This man believed the word that Jesus spoke, and he went his way. So consider the times in your life where it has been this easy. Think think back to your kids. Think I think back to my kids before they were born. All of us can relate to this. You know, you're desperate to have your kids be healthy, you're desperate for the delivery to go well, and uh, you regularly beseech the Lord towards that end, and you're thankful that he's answered those prayers. And we're, you know, we, I have three healthy kids now, and I'm like, this is, this is pretty easy. And I think sometimes things can be going so well that we kind of get lulled to sleep by the goodness of our Lord. There isn't really a bad thing. I mean, this isn't a bad thing in the sense of we should be glad for his goodness. We should be glad and we should be thankful for it. However... We have to remember that his goodness for us is not only for that immediate, most pressing need that we feel desperate for, but it's for our continued sanctification. It's for all of those around us, even. And let's, look, let's read the rest of the story, 51 through 54. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour that he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that the hour was when Jesus said, Your son will live, and he himself believed, and his whole household. He himself believed, and his whole household. This isn't the first time we've seen this in this book, where a believer's belief is strengthened even. 
because of something Jesus did for them. We've seen that with the disciples a few times. When Jesus was at the wedding, at Cana, as it were, and he made the wine. And then what did it say about the disciples? It just has this one little statement. And his disciples believed. It wasn't like this was the first time they came to believe in Jesus. It's just their belief was strengthened in Jesus. We see that with the people in in Samaria that Jesus met with. They believed because of the testimony of the woman, but when Jesus spoke to them, their belief was even more strengthened. Now we see this with the official, who believed when Jesus said, your son will live, but when the man said it happened at this time, he immediately thought, wow, and his belief was strengthened. And not only was his belief strengthened, but all of his household's belief came about. It could be that this was their first time to believe on the name of Jesus, or it could be that they were already disciples of his, we don't know. But the point here is that Jesus used the faith of the man to strengthen his belief and even more. And so let us, as believers, not miss those times in our life. Let us never just expect God's goodness, but let us bask in it every time we experience it. Let it be our, the reason that our faith continues to increase. Let us not get lulled to sleep, but continue to say more and more, I believe, every day. Because we can easily come up with a reason for our faith to be shaken. But we need to consider all of those things that the Lord does for us and be thankful for what the Lord is doing and what he has done for us. Whatever the illness was here, its power stood minuscule next to the power of the Creator. And he was healed as a result. And many more were strengthened in their belief. However, it isn't always this way. And we know that. We don't always see good things. But sometimes we have to experience bad things. And those bad things can cause us to be cynical. It's these bad interactions with other believers or something that we view as bad that has happened to us as a result of God's providence. Because oftentimes we only say God's providence when it's something good, but God's providence is all things, not just the good things. And these things cause us to be cynical towards others, towards God. Rather than expecting that He'll do a work, we expect Him not to. And so that brings us to the next story, and that is the faithless cripple and the faithful Savior. So there was a feast of the Jews. We have no way of knowing for sure which feast it is, but we do know that these were typically well-attended events, that people from all over would come to these feasts. And so Jesus is in this busy part of town called the Sheep Gate. This is where the sheep would literally be brought in through the door to be sacrificed. When the, when the wall was being built back in Nehemiah, you had these instructions, and it's just called the Sheep Gate because that's where the sheep come in. Pretty, pretty handy name. And here they are at this pool, and this pool is surrounded by a colonnade, so you can imagine these columns standing up and maybe a roof over it. And this place is called Bethesda, which is literally House of Mercy. And so there's this porch or pool with this... Um, roof over it that's maybe like an open 
tabernacle sort of thing that's called the House of Mercy, and there's this pool in the middle of it, and there are invalids laying all around, and it gives us a description of the invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. And there was one man who had been there for 38 years. When I first started reading this story, after I became a believer and like studying this story, I was 18, and 38 seemed like uh, forever, but I'll be 38 in June. And looking back at those years, I consider 38 to be a long time. So I can't imagine being unable to walk for that amount of time. We don't know if he was lame from birth or this happened to him later in life. We have no idea. But he came to this pool because occasionally people would be healed. Now you have this footnote uh, on this passage. And uh, it reads this, it's verse 3 and 4, and I'll read the footnote from my uh, version. It says, People were waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after stirring the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So an interesting story. Uh, the footnote is there because this particular verse is not found in the best manuscript, best manuscript evidence, so we don't believe it to be canon, but it's still a pretty good description of what this man was talking about when he talked about the waters being stirred up and how he wanted to be healed from the stirring of the waters. This isn't one of those zero entry pools. If you've ever looked at like a, a pool from, uh, from this time period, they didn't have these zero-entry pools where, like, the baby could crawl in, you know, and still be okay. Uh, this was where you had zero to eight feet or zero to 20 feet or whatever. It was. It went from nothing to full-in commitment. All right? So he couldn't just ease himself into the water. All right? It wasn't like he could just kind of, like, slide in. And he was lame, and we had no idea what that means. Maybe he couldn't walk at all or couldn't move at all. So the pool has these steep sides, falling in, obviously not a good option for someone who can't move very well. And so here's this man, and you can imagine how many times has it happened where the water's been stirred up, and you can, you can literally, in my mind, what I see is like people stepping over him to get healed. And he's like, oh, there it is again. You know, it's just this constant negativity building up, this cynicism building up that he's never going to get healed. 38 years. Awful. Here comes Jesus, the creator of all things, the great healer, the one who speaks life into the dead, the one that makes the blind to see. Surely this man had heard of Jesus and had heard of his great works by now. And so Jesus, feeling compassion on this man, walks up 38 years of being an invalid, 38 years of being stepped over at the pool of healing. And Jesus says, do you want to be healed? Seems like a simple enough question, right? Seems like a simple enough answer. Yes, absolutely I want to be healed. And we saw, in the last story, we saw a father who wanted his son to be healed so much that he like chased Jesus down and insisted that Jesus heal him. And we might easily surmise that Jesus healed the boy because of, his, because of the father's faith alone. And that this man, and for us for that matter, need only demonstrate faith 
and Jesus will heal us too. And send us a check in the mail and the new car or whatever. Right? So this, this man only needs to say, yes, I believe in Jesus, and he'll do it. Sincerity is all he needs, right? Look at his response. Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another one steps down before me. Creator of all things, the healer of all people, the redeemer, the Messiah, Emmanuel, standing rare in front of him. Sir, do you want to be healed? This one time I said light and it became. I think I can heal you. Sir, do you want to be healed? Well, you see, um, I can't get down in the pool because, yep, I can't get down in the pool because people just step on me. All right. It is. It does seem like an odd system where the fastest and the best to get all the blessings and the poor wretches get left in the dust for 38 years. And so why do we sometimes believe that faith operates this way? Say your prayers. Read your Bible every day. And then God will be good to you. Then God will answer your prayers. Have enough faith. And then he'll do exactly what he asks, what exactly what you ask him to do. He only has plans to prosper us and for a good future, right? So I'll just believe that and then that'll happen. Or we could find some obscure Old Testament prayer and just pray it in some kind of formulaic way and now see God's blessings pour forth in our lives. Because it's a formula, right? All we need to do is do it right and he'll bless us. Or maybe if we can just give enough to the church, then he'll give back to us. And if you don't give, don't expect a blessing. Because God helps those who help him, right? Well, you see, Jesus... If I could just get someone to lower me down in that water, that would patch me right up. When the one who shouted light into the darkness, and it was, was standing there right next to him, does Jesus really require whatever faith or appearance of faith that we can drum up in ourselves? Or does he act on our lack of faith negatively? As like a vindictive judge, just waiting to tell us, I told you so. I think that sometimes that we, we believe that about our Lord. But nothing could be further from the truth. But he doesn't correct this man's lack of faith. What does he do to him? Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once this man was healed, and he took up his bed after 38 years. And walked. Turn, turn with me real quickly to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. It's one of my favorite passages in Scripture. If you remember Deuteronomy, the context, the people of Israel were in the desert for 40 years. And here they are being given the law a second time. Deuteronomy literally means second law. And so here they are. Let's look at starting at verse 1. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, 
that you may live and multiply and go and possess the land the Lord swore to give your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these forty years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Why were they there for forty years? Is it because that the Lord wanted them to see more of the wilderness? No. Because of their lack of faith. Because they didn't believe that the Lord was going to deliver them to the promised land. They got afraid. Even Moses wouldn't listen. It's going on in verse 3. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart, as man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. You shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the hills and valleys, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and who, out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Why were they there for 40 years? Their lack of faith. What did the Lord do for them anyway? He fulfilled his promises to them. He gave them the promised land that was full of everything they could have ever, ever imagined. He kept his promises. Why did he do that? Well, let's go to the New Testament for an answer here. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. And this should remind us of our study in the covenants. And this should remind us of who God is and what he does. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If we are faithless, if we throw his promises back at him, if he asks to heal us and we say, no, I want to be healed by this water, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. His goodness, his mercy, his love for us does not require our faith. He does so when we are cynical and believe that the world is out to get us and push us down when we go to get healed. He loves us even when our sincerity is completely lacking, and our pumpkin patch is the cruddiest one in the whole state. He loves us anyway. We know that he didn't require our faith to save us to begin with. Why? Because he gives us faith. He gave us faith that we might believe in him initially. What makes us think that he'll now require it of us in order to do work in our lives? He can work even when we are faithless. So brothers and sisters, there are going to be times when we are faithless. 
He's a good God, and he's rich in mercy. He's quick to forgive, and he's quick to pour out his blessings on his people. Because it's for his people that he sent his son to suffer and die. But for the unbeliever here today, there's no amount of goodness and belief and sincerity that you can drum up on your own that will be sufficient merit for your salvation. In fact, as an unbeliever, you're convinced that you still need that dirty pool of your own good works to be stirred up so that you can find salvation in it. Well, there's no salvation there. But salvation is at hand, and it's in Jesus Christ alone. Call upon his name and be saved. For believers in Christ who are here this morning, know that whatever we have, whether we have the faith of this father who wanted his son to be well, or the faith of this lame man by the pool, the Lord will bless us according to his plan and according to his mercy. That doesn't mean that we won't be sick. That doesn't mean that we won't have financial strife or any other kind of problem. But what it does mean is that our God isn't one who operates on some sort of sliding scale of faith, only rewarding those who have enough faith paid into the system. It means that he is a God who keeps his promises and has been doing so since the beginning, since he said he would send one to crush the head of the serpent, since he said he would send one to deliver his people for all eternity. So brothers and sisters, trust in the Lord. Receive his blessing that you that you're that you might believe even more. And that through you the world might know of the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, as we come to you, sometimes we get to be the Father who has faith, but a lot of times we're that man, and we're so thankful that you heal us anyway. And so, Lord, grow our faith, grow our belief, help our unbelief as we struggle in this world. Help us to rely more and more on you so that we might be strengthened in our own belief and our own faith in you, and so that the world might know that you are faithful and that you are the Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.